Father, we do thank you um, for you are good. Um, Lord, we live in a world that has fallen, and it doesn't, it's not hard to see the evidence of sin around us. We see it in physical death as we uh, celebrated the life of Bob Towsley yesterday and, and to, to hear of the events that were happening in our county also. Um, Father, we do pray for uh, that synagogue that is, is uh, uh, suffering a, a, a great tragedy on a day when they were concluding Passover, um, reflecting upon your goodness and your faithfulness to the, the people of Israel. We pray for the families that were affected. We pray for those. There's just a huge ripple effect. And so we, we pray uh, for those that are, that are navigating these waters. And it hits close to home for me with a couple individuals that are uh, connected to the, to the father of this individual. And so we, we pray for uh, our school districts that are involved. We pray for the church that's involved. And, Lord, we just ask that your hand would be upon these individuals. Um, Lord, we do pray for Melanie and, and Abigail as they continue their journey on to Africa. We just pray that you bless their trip. And, Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Gospel of Mark, we ask that you would lead us, that your spirit would guide us through your passage. May we um, understand what's said in context and, and that you would show us principles that apply to us today. We ask that you'd move in each person's heart and that we would grow closer to you and that ultimately uh, through our time with you, um, worshiping you through studying your word, uh, that we would um, have lives that bring glory to you in all that we do. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 1 verse 40. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 38. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. When he'd come back to Capernaum, Several days afterward, it was heard that he was home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. 
Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to see you as you are and that we would stand amazed uh, in awe of you and what you've done in these stories and are doing in our midst. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Okay, so in verse 40, we start with the story. It says a a leper came to Jesus. This is just, uh, there's no sugarcoating this, this description of this individual. It's literally a man with leprosy. And, and the reason it's, it's worded this way is leprosy was this man's identity. To, to get leprosy was, a, was essentially a death sentence. If you really need some late night reading material, you could go to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. This, uh, this week in my study, I, I'm like, I'm going to read Leviticus 13 and 14 over again. And it's like a dermatologist manual. I mean, like, some of the things I remember, it's like, if you see basically a pimple and there's a hair in the pimple and the hair is white, the individual has leprosy. Get rid of this individual. If the hair is brown, the individual's okay. It's just a pimple and you'll be okay. Like, but it goes, it's this whole dermatology section for two very long chapters. I was not surprised to see that in my Bible of like 20 years, I had not one mark in that two chapters of like... I know I've read it before, but nothing has ever really gripped me in that section other than you probably shouldn't read it while you're eating. (laughs) But in chapter 13, verse 45 and 46, this is what it says. It says, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hairs of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall cover his mustache and cry. So he's covering his face from his eyes down. And he should cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. So as soon as somebody was identified as having leprosy, uh, the, the modern name for this disease I find very offensive. It's called Hansen's disease. <laughs> so I really don't like the disease's name today, so I prefer to stick with leprosy. Uh, it is spelled Hansen's with an E, not an O, so I'm clean, not unclean. Um, 
This wasn't just an illness. Illness. This, this was a, a death sentence. It was an exclusion from your community. It was an exclusion from, from touching. It would, it would slowly just deteriorate your body. Fingers would begin to fall off. Um, you would lose toes. Um, it, was, it was terribly contagious. And so God's way of preserving the people, really there's a beauty in this in Leviticus. In order to keep the people healthy, it was they had to go to the outside of town, and there was nothing they could do. I mean, it, w- it wasn't curable. Um, Erdesheim, who wrote a, a great history book during the life and times of, of Jesus, um, he writes this, Significantly, Jesus' work began where that of the rabbis, we had almost said the Old Testament saints ended. Whatever remedies, medical magical or sympathetic rabbinic writings may indicate for various kinds of disease leprosy is not included in the catalog they left aside what even the old testament marked as moral death by enjoining those so stricken to avoid all contact with the living and even to bear the appearance of mourners as the leper passed by his clothes rent his hair disheveled and the lower part of his face and upper lip covered. It was as one going to death who reads his own burial service, while the mournful words, words, unclean, unclean, which uttered proclaim that his was both living and moral death. So they had to stay away from all people. I forget how many paces. I think it was like 50 paces, or maybe it was 15 paces. There was a five in there. Maybe it was five paces. In my tire, tired mind, I forget the, the space. But they had to stay away from everybody. They had to look like they were in mourning as if they were mourning their own death. I mean, if somebody had died, this is the appearance. They would tear their clothes. They would, they would stand out. And so the pain of this leper is huge. I don't, I don't think that we can really understand... Um, what these individuals went through. The, the closest some people can, can get to is maybe in the 70s or 80s when the AIDS epidemic started coming out and people didn't really understand how it was transmitting. But even in that case, everybody says even then, those with HIV were, were treated better than those with leprosy. So it's, it's hard to understand. To, but to know that this individual is in just grave distress from from the physical pain that they're go- he's going through to the to the social pain that he's going through being basically kicked out of his culture family everything and so we're introduced to him and a leper came to jesus and then there's a whole bunch of verbs of showing this guy's intensity beseeching him falling on his knees before him saying if you are willing you can make me clean this guy is pleading for his life. He's, he's making a great risk. Clearly, he's within touching G- distance of Jesus, which would be absolutely forbidden. He's not screaming, unclean, unclean, unclean. He's coming, falling down at the feet of Jesus, pleading with Jesus. To, if, I know you're willing. If you're, I know you're able. If you're willing, please cleanse me. This is a huge, desperate situation. We see that Jesus moved with compassion. This, this phrase is used in another place. In the Greek, it's, it's a phrase that 
I think one guy said it was pregnant with meeting, which I think is a good picture. You know, so it's like nine months along with meeting. <laughs> like, like this, this, this phrase is about to burst. Uh, it's used in Luke 15.20, and the story in Luke 15.20, it's a prodigal son. The son, the father sees, and the, when the father sees a son, he's moved with compassion on his son. That's so deep within him that he's going to reach out to his son, even though he did all of this horrible stuff. The father is just so happy to see him that he has compassion on his son. And so Jesus is moved with compassion. He's so filled up with it that it's overflowing, um, which I do think that there's a lesson of Jesus' example that we as Christians, we should be filled with compassion. And if you're filled with compassion, it should, it should bubble out. When I read stories like this, the, um, the greatest act of compassion that I've ever witnessed in my life and I don't think I could do what this lady did. Um, so Grace was about one years old. Or no, she was like six months old, so 12 and a half years ago or so. I was leaving Coronado with Anna, and the little baby Grace was in the back seat. And when you get to the, from Coronado, to, to get to the 15 North, you have to kind of go south on the five, and then there's an on-ramp that you kind of loop around. And as you loop around, there's a bridge. And it was, it was just sunset time. And as we looped around, I saw a guy jump. Like, literally, as, like, I literally just passed, and he fell at my window. And so I looked at Anna. I'm like, I need to stop. And, and so I pull up enough ahead to where, you know, baby Grace and Anna wouldn't see whatever was back there. I'm a guy that within me, I have to stop for stuff. Like, I, don't, like, I wish I could drive on, but I just have to stop. And so I see the guy, and it looked pretty catastrophic. I mean, he was still alive, but he was dead, and, or was soon to be dead. And I immediately started directing people, like there's three merging lanes. So I was more directing traffic, trying to not have an accident happen. And um, blood was leaving this guy, and he was making sounds. And as the scene kind of settled, I look over, and one of the individuals that stopped was this Hispanic lady, and, I, and she laid next to the guy and was like holding him, praying with him. In Span- and, it was, and I just remember being, this is a guy she doesn't know that's dying, that's bleeding all over everything, and she just got down and like laid in the guy's blood and wrapped her arms around him, put her face on his face and was praying for him in Spanish. Like, basically, is he, like, I don't know if he passed right there, but it had this impact on me. Like, I don't think I could do that. But seeing this lady do this had a profound impact on me. And, and I do remember seeing her pray, because I, I could hear her praying for him. And then when, they, um, when the paramedics finally got there and they picked the guy up, the guy was like, he jumped, grasping, holding on a Bible. And... Um, and so th- this is like, what this, th- that's the closest thing I can imagine to what Jesus is about to do. This is a guy with leprosy. Jesus sees this guy, and he sees what he's gone through to get to him, and he stretches out his hand, and he touched him, this highly contagious disease. This is, you don't do this. 
And yet, Jesus, being so moved with compassion, he touches the guy, and Jesus, being who Jesus is, he doesn't have to be worried. He's not worried about his disease spreading to him. Jesus knows that his holiness is going to bleed onto him and heal the guy. And so he touched him. And I can't imagine what did this leper feel like. When was the last time this guy was touched by a human? Like we can speculate that he was touched by other lepers um, in, in a leper colony, but we don't know that for certain. We, we know biblically that they weren't to touch anybody. And so it could be years that this guy had experienced another human touch. And here Jesus touched him, and he says to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. And and we're told uh, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And then Jesus commands him to do basically three things. We see that he sternly warned him. So this this is a harsh word. It wasn't like Jesus just said something that wasn't clear. Jesus was very clear to him that he was to, going down to verse 44, like so the text kind of reads a little broke. So he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away, is what Mark records. But then he says, this is what happened in verse 44. And he said to him before he went away, see that you say nothing to anybody, so you keep your mouth shut about what just happened. Show yourself to the priest and then offer your, off, make an offering according to what Moses said for the healing of of uh, uh, concerning the Old Testament law. And so I'm kind of going to take this in reverse order. Um, Jesus lived under the law. He obeyed the law. Um, In every practical sense, this was the only way for this leper to get back into his community. He could be healed all that he wants, but until a priest gives him the, the medical waiver that, no, this guy's good to go. Like, you know, the, the priest would read Leviticus 13 through 14, make certain determinations and go, no, based on this, this guy's healthy. There's an offering that you can make according to Moses. And so Jesus says, don't say anything about what I've done. Just go find a priest. Let him examine you to verify the cleansing. Let him uh, give you instruction on making the offering according to the law of Moses. And then with that, you can be back in your community. And then the third thing, or the first thing we see, is it says, keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't checked it out yet, but Guy on this last tour to Israel, he, he, he said the observation he's made from the Gospels is that Jesus, every time there's a Jew that he encounters, he tells them to keep their mouth shut. And every time it's a Gentile, he says, go tell everybody. So I haven't verified it yet, but in this case, it's, tr- it's true. Um, and in verse 45, what we get is this but. But he went out and began to pro- proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Um, we have no idea if the guy went to the priest. Before I come down harshly on the guy, <laughs> I had leprosy and he was healed. I can understand his joy, his excitement, his wanting to share what had happened to him. I, I get it. 
And that's normally the direction that people go with this text. But right in the midst of this text, what Mark conveys is that Jesus sternly talked to him and gave very specific instructions for what he was to do as he went out. And this guy didn't do, he did the exact opposite of what Jesus did. And most people look at this story and they say there is a, there is a subtle picture of Jesus' substitutionary atonement in this story. The story begins with Jesus is on the inside and he's on the outside of culture. By the end of the story, Jesus is on the outside of the community and now this leper's on the inside of community. Um, we see that this guy's sin of not obeying Jesus directly impacted Jesus' ministry. It was negatively impacted. That's why I read verse 38 because in verse 38, he said to them, he's talking to the disciples, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. So Jesus' plan is to go from town to town talking to all the people. By the end of the story, the guy had so said everything, said anything about what had happened, so spread the word about what had happened to him in verse 45. We, said, we see at the end of verse 45, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed in unpopulated areas. So because of this guy's big mouth running, everything changed. And as I've been thinking about this, although I don't really know where I'm going with this, because there's a command for us to share. Like we as Christians have, uh, have a commission for the Great Commission, but I don't think that we have a commission to be, um, I, I don't know the word, so I probably won't say the word until I get the right word in my thinking. We don't, we don't need to be abrasive. We don't need to be um, obnoxious, I think I heard. That's a good word. I like obnoxious. Hey, Larry, good job. <laughs> like, I like, <laughs> like, but, 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 so I, when I've been thinking about this story, the, my worst class in Bible college or seminary, I forget which level it was in, class I hated the most was evangelism. Totally hated it. I took the class in the wintertime. It started around Christmas, and the first day of class, it was this guy, I forget his name. He was so funny. Funniest guy I ever met. He was brilliant. He spoke like five different languages, and he was a com- like he was just a comedian. He had degrees from every place, and he'd had a stroke. But even with his stroke, and he'd lost half of his memory. He was still smarter than most everybody in the school. And he said that he was so in academic worlds, he hated it, and he wanted to stay grounded with uh, real people. And so in order to like exercise his gift of evangelism, what he did was he became a limo driver on the side, not for the money, just to engage with people. He's like, I got a trapped audience, you know, they're wealthy. It's like a really good clientele. And like, they can't really do anything. Like, I don't care about the job. So I want to do a good job, but I can't get in trouble for talking to them. And so he's talking about, I'm like, oh, this guy's really funny, you know. And then he's like, okay, guys, that's enough talking. From now on, for the rest of the class, we're going to meet, spend five minutes, and we're going to go to the mall and start witnessing to people. I'm like, what? No. It's, I hate the mall, period. Then you complicate it with Christmas. And then you want me to, like, to go talk to people? And so we went out. And it was horrible. I did laps around Parkway Plaza Mall. Didn't talk to any, like I didn't want to talk to anybody. Finally, after two hours, and I'm doing my laps, I see this like 60-year-old limo teacher professor who has a slur in his mouth. He's in the food court with like 50 teenagers, like all laughing, telling jokes. And I, oh yeah, praise God. But I'm thinking, I, what is wrong with me? Like I hate this. 
And I'm like, I can't go back to class at the end not having to talk to anybody. So there was like some poor girl working a merry-go-round thing. <laughs> and I went and go talk to her and I say, hey, I'm in a class, I'm just forced to do evangelism. She was really sweet. Talked to her about 10 minutes and then I realized she's got this Bible that's like twice the size of my Bible sitting there. And so I'm like, well, I witnessed to a Christian, which is okay, it was easy. <laughs> and we get back, the point where I'm going, I am going somewhere with this. We, we get back to the class and the professor wants a debrief and, and uh, he said, how did everybody do? And I'm like, well, I probably walked about 50 laps around the mall and didn't want to talk to anybody. And every lap I did, I saw you with all these kids. And I don't know how you do it. And he's like, oh, I'm just having fun. I'm a people person. It's, it's, it's fine. I don't, don't feel bad about it. And he's like, don't force it. And he said, I'll never forget the first time I went. I, I went with somebody evangelizing. And I was there to sort of evaluate the person kind of thing. And, and he said, I went there. And this guy went up to the door of this individual and he had his whole spiel that he had in his mind, his, his little sales pitch. And he said within 10 minutes, I could tell the guy wasn't in, Well, he said within five minutes, I could tell the guy wasn't interested. But this guy kept going and going and going and being really aggressive with the guy he's talking to. And he said after like 20 minutes, we walked away. And the guy that was giving his spiel was really excited that he got through his spiel. And he said, that was awesome. I just totally, I think I led this guy to the Lord. How would you think I do? And the guy, he's like shaking his head. He's like, I looked at him and I said, I don't think that guy's going to be open to the gospel for the rest of his life because of what you just did to him. And I think that the lesson somehow in this is sometimes we can think that we're honoring God, but we're actually doing a disservice to the gospel. And I don't know how that plays out because we have this command to share the gospel. But in this case, this guy, he disobeyed, he disobeyed, he he did a shortcut, he did something, and there's a direct link between verses 38 and 45 that because of his actions, Jesus' ministry was shifted. So I don't know what to do with that, and I'm just going to move on because I'm tired, but like, that's something I've been, <laughs> I mean, it's something I've been pondering about. Like, like, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit. We need to be, uh, I guess I can argue with both sides on this issue. Um, and I think that the, Knowing where the line is, it's, we really have to be sensitive to the Spirit, and we really have to genuinely listen to other people as we're sharing the gospel with them and, and telling about Christ. Um, but I'll move on to the next story. From, from this story, we see a paralytic. This is a, this is a lost cause and, that was outside of rabbinic care, and Jesus came, and he healed him, what the rabbis couldn't do. I, I think that's the, one of the main points of this story, and then we're going to get to another worst case situation, which is this paralytic man. And that what we're going to look at next week, I think that Mark is building that Jesus is, can handle worst case scenarios because the very worst case scenario, the untouchable person next week, is going to be that Jesus can save a tax collector, the vilest <laughs> of all. Like I'm, it's funny, but it's real. Like um, The calling of Matthew comes next. But so here we come in verse... One of chapter two, when he'd come back to Capernaum, just looking at the map, when you see the Sea of Galilee, at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, um, you can see right under the Galilee, it says Capernaum. And that was, that, that was basically Jesus's hometown. Um, we, we read when he'd come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And so there's great speculation over what does this mean. It, the town was small. Did Jesus have a home? 
Well, Jesus did say later that even the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. So some say, well, he didn't have a home. So then others say, well, it was probably Peter's place. I just kind of think it means like it's where Jesus was staying. Like he had a home place. He had a place he stayed, whether he owned the residence or he was just staying there. But, but it was a known place that was known as the place where Jesus spent his time. And so he enters Capernaum several days afterward, and it was heard that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even at, near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So it's a packed house. Everybody had heard. They'd all come. And Mark says that what Jesus was doing was speaking the word. This, this phrase sort of became um, a, a charge in the early church. We, we hear... Um, we hear Paul tell young Timothy, preach the word. Um, I think Peter tells him, be, be prepared, you know, in season, out season to preach the word. I'm, I don't have the verses before me, but this preach the word began to be used in the early church as sort of a commitment to teach the word of God, to be faithful about presenting what God has uh, revealed to his people to have. And so here Jesus is proclaiming the word of God to them. And it was a packed house. I think it's Hilarious that this comes the day after Bob's memorial service because it's not hard for me to imagine. Like literally yesterday, we had every single seat was taken. There were people on stage. There were people standing all in the back. The lobby was pretty much full. They'd put 34 seats in the nursery. Every seat there was taken. So we speculate that there were like 200 people there. And... Jesus is teaching. And in the midst of his teaching, some things begin to happen. And this story can be, it's like, is deeply troubling to me for a guy that, like, if I hear a beep of a cell phone or something, my mind's like, hey, that was a beep. I wonder, did I get a text message? <laughs> like, like, like who, for, as a guy who's so easily distracted, Jesus is teaching, and it's like, I'm trying to imagine, like, what would happen if, the dust starts coming through the, the roof. In the incident yesterday, I'm most proud of the rabbi. Like the Union Tribune, the article I read, the rabbi got shot in the hand yesterday. He continues preaching while comforting somebody else, and he just says, everybody relax, it's okay. <laughs> I'm like, you're awesome. Like that is one rabbi I have a tremendous amount of respect for, that he can press on after being shot. And here Jesus is teach, teaching this packed house. And while he's teaching, verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get in because of the crowd. They've removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So we could talk all about roofs in Israel during this time. Um, they, they clearly would have some slats. Like there's speculation there could be like slats uh, with some tiles, with some like tree branches. Clearly there's some element of dirt or something that, because the word is that they dug through the roof. And I don't know how you can dig through anything without stuff like falling to the ground on all of the people. And if this is Jesus' house or Peter's house, there's even more cause to get, like, 
I would not be happy if you guys started cutting a hole in my roof of my house. Um, and even if it was at the church, I'd be a little bit upset because it's like, who's got to fix that afterwards, you know? Like, and, and then it's like in the midst of, you know, debris falling, all, all I see is the compassion of Jesus and his grace and his sensitivity. And clearly, one of the greatest lessons, the, 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 the crux of the story is huge concerning who Jesus is. And I think it ties in with the, the leper I mean, all of Mark. And so they get a hole big enough to lower this poor guy down on the pallet. Did the four guys hop down from the hole afterwards? Did they drop the guy? Like, I think there's a lot of questions I have in this story. I wish we had video. But it's not easy to lower some. Like, I've lowered people that are hurt, and it never goes well. Like, it always, there's always a little. But they get him down. And it says that in Jesus seeing their faith, which, like how far will your faith take you? Like how, how, how much on a limb are you willing to go by your faith before you start feeling uncomfortable by what are people thinking about me? Um, you know, I'm not saying that I have like great, like I, I, like I struggle with it. You're in a setting and it's like how far will my faith take me before I'm aware of my circumstances and I'm more concerned about what the people around me are thinking than I am about what God is thinking. But these are some pretty bold guys. Like, these are good friends to hang out with. Show up, there's 200 people spilling out of Jesus' house and my poor paralytic guy's like, oh man, we came all this way. Like, like, no, 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 we got a problem. Look at the roof is wide open. Like, (laughs) there's stairs. We can just get you in through that way. And Jesus seeing this, he sees their faith. He sees this great effort that they are going to to get before Jesus, to get their friend to him. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I'm not sure what the guy was thinking at that point. It's like, well, that's great. Like, was he thinking, oh, that's great, but I'm actually here for other reasons. (laughs) Like, I'm more concerned about my legs and arms than I am about my sins. Um. You could make a case, you know, in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when they, uh, when they passed by, there was a man who was blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, who's, whose sin was it, this man's or his parents, that caused his blindness? So certainly they would have, an, they, they would have a, a mindset that, that these things were as a result of sin, Like, we don't know what the guy was thinking. Where the story goes is to describe these religious leaders who are observing Jesus, probably they're just simply to take notes on how they can condemn him. Because the scene immediately shifts in verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, so they're thinking about this. As I, think, as I read about these guys, I think about myself early in my, like, I can't say early in my Christian life. I could have been a Christian, but it early in the days of where I was sort of uh, auditing Christianity, I think is the best way to say it, when I was going to church on Tuesday for the free pizza. And, but I would go there, and as the pastor spoke, all I would do is take notes in my head with how I disagreed with everything he was saying. But I kept coming back. I'm sure it was because of the free pizza. Um, but eventually it changed. 
but I wasn't like mean to the pastor. I was nice and gracious because I didn't want my pizza supply to get cut off. And I'd like, I certainly was like polite and, and I wasn't mean to anybody. But in my heart, I was like, this is just foolish. Like, how can the cross equal salvation? How can this be a remedy for my sin? The things they're saying just, does, it just is not logical. And, and these guys are sitting there and they're reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? And what they're concerned with is blasphemy. And it says, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Um, The definition of blasphemy, according to Lunida, which is a a kind of a book on language, a, a lexicon. And they say one way in which blasphemy was used in speaking of defaming God was by claiming some kind of equality with God. Any such statement was regarded by the Jew of biblical times as being harmful and injurious to the nature of God. And so I would say that these guys, these scribes, their criticism of Jesus, it's valid if Jesus wasn't who we know him to be. Because what Jesus is saying by son, your sins are forgiven, he's equating himself as God. He's saying, I am the Messiah. And I have the authority. I've seen your faith and your your sins are forgiven. And they don't say anything, but they're thinking, this is blasphemy. What we've just, this has crossed the line this man is claiming to be God. Now, they haven't said anything. And in verse 8, we read, Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit, Satan can't read your thoughts. Man can't read your thoughts. Jesus has the capacity to read your thoughts. I think there's a lesson here in knowing that Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knows there's, there's no point in hiding anything. If you have sin, if you have some questions, if you have frustration, he, he knows what's in your heart, so it's okay to express to him or, or to reach out to him. And Jesus, aware of what they were thinking, he then confronts their concerns. And I genuinely think that Jesus wasn't like in a debate with them. We'll see by the end of the story what Jesus is trying to do is to demonstrate to them that he actually is God. And he said to them, why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Now, this is like the, uh, in chess, this is kind of like the fork move. You know, you place yourself, and it's like, you're either going to lose your queen or you're going to lose your bishop. <laughs> you choose because you're in trouble. Uh, really, it's more like checkmate. And we don't have time to, like, they don't go into how they responded. They don't, they don't, we don't hear the debate amongst themselves for how do they answer this. But, but this is, this is huge. Uncommon to some people's belief today, like, Miracles in the Bible weren't happening all over the place. Like I have a couple friends that have done like a chronological chart from creation to present day or like from to, to revelation of the miracles. 
it seems like that there's these pockets of windows in time where a whole bunch of miracles happen, and then there's huge seasons with, without them. So this wasn't like miracles were just dropping left and right. Like Jesus, what he was doing was supernatural. And so he asked him the question, hey, what's it easier to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And b- both are super easy to say. We'd all agree on that, right? I mean, you can, you can say that. The problem with saying your sins are forgiven, how do you authenticate that? I can say your sins are forgiven all day long, and it's, it's, can you die and then go to heaven, meet God, and then come back and then tell me did it work? You know, that's, that's basically what we're talking about. Now, to look at a paralytic guy and say, hey, get up and walk, there's instant authentication. And so I don't think Jesus really gives him time to, like, answer this question. He says in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You should highlight that. You should put that in. I, I haven't. I've chosen pink in my Bible and highlighter. If they, it really works well in mine. He gives the reason in verse 10 why he's doing these miracles. See, if they weren't reasoning in their heart, the story would have just ended. Jesus would have said, hey, your sins are forgiven. That's the guy's ultimate need. He might think that his being paralyzed is his ultimate need, You might think that getting a new car is your ultimate need. You might think, fill in the blank of whatever you feel like your greatest need is. Your greatest need is dealing with your sin. And so Jesus, in seeing these guys' faith, he addresses his ultimate need, and that's forgiveness of his sins. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. If everybody just thought, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and went about their business, I think the story would have moved on. But Jesus sees these religious leaders accusing Jesus of blasphemy in their hearts. And he says, which is harder? And he says, okay, son, get up. Pick up your pallet and go home. But before he does that, he says that the reason that he's about to do is so that those who are there would understand that the Son of Man, and this phrase should go ding, ding, ding in your head, um, if you remember back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this huge vision. There's uh, the Father in heaven doing this stuff, and all of a sudden it says the Son of Man approaches, and Daniel gets his revelation of the Messiah. And so Jesus uses this phrase, Son of Man, about himself. I think it's the third most uh, term that's used about him. Um, and so we read Son of Man, we're used to it, but Jesus is like doubling down, if we can use gambling phraseology <laughs> Like, he went from saying, I have the power to forgive this guy's sins. And if you think that I'm blaspheming, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I'm not. And I'm also going to say it boldly that I'm the son of man. That I am the one that was prophesied back in Daniel 7.13. And so he said that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This whole issue is about sins. It's not about miracles. It's about Jesus' capacity to forgive sins. The miracle simply authenticates the spiritual reality of his authority. Don't get lost in the... And I think this is why Jesus is trying to hide from everybody because he knew everybody would just want a miracle. They just want this and miss out. The, the, the reality is that humanity is separated from God through their sin and the Messiah has come to give his life as a ransom for many so that he can bring restoration to us as humans and that we can have fellowship with our creator again, which sin ruined. 
And so then he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your pallet and go home. I get goosebumps just thinking about the scene. <laughs> this paralytic, I think there's a kid's song. I don't know if it's the same story, but I went lumpy, leaping and jumping and praising God, you know, like, um, or maybe you guys don't know that, or maybe I'm not even doing the right song right, but I know there's a song with leaping and jumping and praising God. I just don't know if it's connected to the story. Um, but the guy got up. He got up immediately. He picked up the pallet. I wonder why he picked up the pallet. Like, I'm going to have a bonfire after this now. I don't know. Like, he doesn't need the pallet anymore, but he took the pallet and he cleaned up his mess that he made in this house that was whoever's house it was. He picked up the pallet and he went out in the sight of everyone so that they were amazed and they were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. This is them being awestruck. Matthew 9, 8 says this concerning this, this situation. It says, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, which means to be afraid and glorified God. Luke 5, 26 said they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Back to Erdesheim, um, the man who wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, really old guy. Um, concerning these, these, these three stories, we've only covered two of them. But going from the, the leper to the paralytic to, to the tax collector, he says this. Um, For as rabbinism, or you know, rabbi school of thought, stood confessedly powerless in face of of the living death of leprosy, so it had no word of forgiveness to speak to the conscience burdened with sin, nor yet word of welcome to the sinner. But this was the inmost meaning of the two events which the gospel history places next to the healing of the leper, the forgiveness of sins in the case of the paralytic, and the welcome to the chief of sinners in the case of the call of Levi, Matthew. There's no sin that's too great for God to take care of. We all come here today separated from God by our sin. First, the sin that you inherited genetically, DNA-wise, that goes back to Adam and Eve. And most reasonable people are willing to acknowledge that they personally have had acts of sin on their own. And so the story screams of our need for a redeemer. So the greatest question is, have you received forgiveness from God? Um, if you haven't, it's a simple transaction. It's belief. It's not, it's not like not praying a prayer. It's not walking the aisle. It's in your heart when the, I get it, Jesus died for me, I believe. And if you've received this forgiveness, our response is to bring glory to God. This is the first question of the, the, the Westminster Catechism. 
What is the chief aim of man? The chief aim of man is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him all the days of our life or something close to that. That's just Gunner's rendition of it. And so we see that in there. They're in awe of God. They believe. They leave worshiping him, glorifying him. And how does this, what does that mean? What do that means by honoring God with his word, what he says to do, to, to live in community with other believers? If you're married, to love your spouse, your children, to treat your children well. If you're a child, to honor your parents, to, to live for God in all your ways. It's really the same for all of us. So my prayer is that we would be able to glorify God as a church family. Um, Father, we do thank you for these stories. We thank you for the display of Christ and his glory. Um, in these stories of healing the leper and in healing this paralytic, that the, the real issue behind these stories is what Christ said to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive sin. Lord, your word makes it clear that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for us. Lord, we pray for those that we know, maybe in this room or, or listening to the message, that haven't received you as Savior, that you would help them to understand uh, grace, that they would understand that salvation, uh, it, it comes through faith. It's, it's, it's your grace poured out, and it's just by believing. It's, it's almost too simple for us to understand. And so, Lord, I, I pray for those of us that have responded to your offer of forgiveness, um, that we wouldn't be led off course uh, by Satan who wants to convince us that the cross wasn't sufficient. To, to really cover all of our sins. Um, there are things that some of us are very ashamed of in our past. And, and so, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to let go of these things that we continue um, to let linger, uh, that we would receive full cleansing from you that you are providing for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to go about our days bringing you glory in all that we do, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with those outside of the church, uh, within our families. Um, Lord, I, I'm not sure what to make of this leper that he was so excited and in his passion he disobeyed you. And so somewhere in there I think there's a warning for us. Lord, I, I just pray that you would help us to, to honor what you say. Um, sometimes we disobey you thinking that we know better and that we're actually doing right. And, and so help us to be sensitive to your voice and to honor you in all that we do. We thank you that you're a gracious God and one that uh, is slow to anger and, and that your mercy is just endures and that you put up with us and you lead us along gently like a father and, and kindly like a mother. And, and so we are grateful for our relationship that we have with you. Um, we love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.